0: morning everyone good to have you out and thank you as well and good morning to those that are joining us online uh, for those of you that may not know me my name is Paul Graham and I'm a lead teaching pastor here at Lakeside and we are currently in a series on Philippians and we're at about the halfway point uh, we've done four messages this is the fifth of eight and uh, yeah it's we're kind of rushing a little bit through Philippians. I'd like to do Philippians in 16 messages, but we decided we'd do it in 8, so that's what we're getting. And uh, I would like to do Philippians in like 37 messages, but that's all right. We'll do 8. Um, got a whole Bible to get through. Um, so this section that we come to um, is really at the heart. We're at the middle of the series. We're kind of in the middle of the book in Philippians chapter 3, 1-11. to 11. And Philippians, as you know, has been sort of characterized as the epistle or the letter of joy. And Paul repeatedly comes back to the theme of thankfulness, of joy, of rejoicing. Even in the midst of oppression and suffering and persecution, we are to rejoice. And right at the heart of this letter of joy, we get to the reason why Christians have joy. And Paul is going to summarize for us, in contrast to false forms of righteousness, the true righteousness that we can enjoy through the gospel. And we get an amazing kind of doctrinal, theological summary from Paul of what the gospel is. And I'm going to take this text. We're going to dive right into it. I'm going to take... Philippians 3, 1 to 11, in three parts. And the first part will kind of give us context uh, as to Paul's immediate context with the Philippians and how it applies then to us. Uh, then he's going to uh, have a section uh, that explains what false or hopeless righteousness is, kind of in a, um, a tone of um, irony. And then he's going to explain where our real rejoicing comes from and where our he- real confidence and hope comes from. And so I'll just pray before we read, and we'll just dive straight into God's Word. Father God, we thank you for this letter. We thank you for the lessons it has taught us already. I thank you especially for this text right here today. This is uh, counted among many texts in the New Testament as one of the the summits, one of the peaks, um, where we just get clearly laid out where our confidence, where our hope, where our rejoicing, where our righteousness comes from. And, Father, it is offensive. Uh, I'm cognizant of that, that it offends the world to, to be told that it is not a righteous world. It offends religious people and good people to be told that they are not righteous, even if they're good. But then it ends with incredible encouragement and hope that real righteousness can be ours and that it is a a gift that has been accomplished and done and offered to us and so father get our hearts and our minds in the right frame of mind uh, to read this text as the encouragement that paul means it to be in christ's name amen so philippians 3 1 to 11 i'll just read the whole text and then as i said we'll take it in three parts Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. There's rejoicing again. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh... For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." This is God's Word. So, the first section that we have here in the text is context to the Philippians. And it is some context to us as well, but mainly context to the Philippians. Um, and so I'll go through it rather quickly. Um, first of all, he says, rejoice. Rejoice. And again, he's bringing these Philippians back to this idea of rejoicing, uh, especially that rejoicing is the right response, as we've learned so far, to prison for Paul. It's the right response to persecution or suffering and needing to stand firm in a crooked and perverse environment, and even internal church divisions and turmoil. Paul says to the Philippians, you still rejoice. (laughs) You know, the, the first two chapters of this letter have been about reasons maybe not to rejoice, but you rejoice. And 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 how do we rejoice? Well, Paul, speaking Philippi, to the Philippians specifically, he says, "Look out for the for the dogs." This is what's going on in the church, and it doesn't sound good. It sounds offensive, and it is offensive. He says, "Look out for the evildoers," and and this is what is going on. He's he's talking about the Judaizers that he also has talked about in uh, in uh, Galatians, and he talks about them in in the second letter to the Corinth, and, and I just want to explain to, the, to understand the context of the Philippians, the turmoil going on inside the church is that Jewish people who have accepted Christ or believe that Jesus is the Messiah are also hanging on to the old law, and they're saying that Christians, especially Gentile Christians, needs to follow the feasts and they need to follow some of the sacrifices, and specifically what he's addressing here is that they need to be circumcised so that they can be full participants in the covenant. Yes, Jesus is good. Jesus is the Messiah. We agree with that. But you also have to follow the feasts and the sacrifice, and you have to be circumcised. Now, that, as I say, is context for Philippians. We don't have people going around our church saying that we need to sacrifice goats or honor the feasts or, thank goodness, be circumcised. Uh, If anybody starts doing that, trust me, I'll stop them from doing that. Um, But Paul wants to stop them, too. He says, this is ridiculous. They are seeking a righteousness, or they're putting hope in a righteousness that is under the law, and Christ has come to give us a new law and a new covenant, and so you don't need to do those things, and it's causing turmoil. And Paul is emphatic about this, because this interferes with the gospel. This is why Paul is so upset. This is why he has so much animosity and enmity towards the theory or the doctrine of theology of the Judaizers. And he's not angry at Jewish people, uh, not at all. It's not the people that he's angry at. He's angry about what they're teaching. You know, in fact, in Romans 9, Paul says that he's overwhelmed with sorrow in his heart and great anguish, wishing that if it were possible, he could be accursed as a substitute to save his people. So this is not about Paul turning against the Jewish people or turning against Jewish anything. This is Paul saying these people who have claim to know the Messiah but are trying to add to what Jesus has done with works of the law are dogs. And he says they are not people of the circumcision. He actually says he are, they are those of the mutilation. It's a very strong language. And if the language that Paul uses seems strong, it's because it is strong. And it would land on the Philippian church even stronger. But he says in contrast. He says to the Philippians, he says, We are the circumcision. We who worship in the Spirit of God and in the glory, and we who glory in Christ Jesus, and we who put no confidence in these fleshly works, we are the true circumcision. And that's his assurance that we really are participants in the covenant with God. We are circumcised, we who are circumcised in the heart. We worship by the Spirit. We worship in truth. We worship Jesus, we glory, we treasure, we value, we hope. Our boasting, our confidence is in Jesus Christ. And so we don't have any boasting or any confidence in our flesh. As people, just human beings, we don't have any confidence. We don't have any confidence in ritual or practice or religion. And if you realize the parallel sentence structure here is that worship in that final statement would imply that the Judaizers are worshiping their own righteousness, He says, we are the circumcision who put no confidence in our flesh. They are not the circumcision because they put confidence in their flesh. So that's why I've titled this text Rubbish Versus Righteousness, because Paul is now going to go on in that context to say, believers, friends, Philippians, you can have no confidence in the flesh. Do not listen to those people. Do not put your hope and your confidence in what you have done, because I'm going to show you where that leads and what that actually is. Paul explains how dangerous it is to put confidence in the flesh, here and in many places, probably most plainly and concisely in Romans 8, 6, where he says, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to put the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So Paul uses a strong language here. It's a warning. It is life and death to the Apostle Paul, what he is going to teach right now. And he says, instead, we put... I should have been highlighting these things. He said, instead, we put no confidence in the flesh, no confidence in the flesh, no confidence in the flesh, but instead confidence in Christ. So how does he do this? Well, Paul does this two ways. First of all, he gives them seven arguments of kind of mock boasting in his flesh, he says he's going he's gonna to make seven arguments that by both birth and by his own law-keeping, his flesh is more qualified than anyone's to be declared righteous. But birth, class, heritage, and works are trash compared to the righteousness of Jesus. He says he was circumcised on the eighth day. By saying this, Paul sets him above in the flesh, any pagans who are not circumcised, or even maybe circumcised later in life, or anybody who was uh, circumcised in some manner not in accordance to the law, because they had parents like me who just missed important dates and appointments. Paul is saying, not only am I circumcised, I was circumcised exactly and perfectly according to the law on the eighth day as I was supposed to be. And then he says, I'm of the people of Israel. And here Paul sets himself from any proselytes, from any people who converted to Judaism as an adult and were not ethnically included in the covenant people. Paul says, I'm not a second-class Jew. I'm not merely a Jew by choice, but by birth, I am of the people of Israel. And then he says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. He knows his tribe. There's no obscure heritage for Paul. He can trace his lineage back to the original tribe, to a founding father of the nation. There is nothing that cannot be objectively determined is true that Paul is an inheritor of the covenant. Doubles down, he says he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. His conclusion of those three points is that he is a pure-blood Israelite and fully embraces his heritage. He isn't some cosmopolitan, Hellenized, modern Jew who eats bacon and listens to Gentile music. He is a Jew all the way through. From birth to the present, Paul has no compromise of anything in his heritage as an inheritor of the righteousness of the covenant of being a Jewish person, a person of God. But then he goes on in his argument, because it's not just his birth, it's not just that his heritage is impeccable. He walks the walk. He says, as to the law, I'm a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the uh, Israelite or Jewish equivalent of a holiness movement. The Pharisees stressed complete compliance with the law. They had no time for lukewarm or weak-willed Jews. They tied their mint and their dill and their cumin, Jesus says, and they wore their beards trimmed exactly according to the law. The tassels of their robe were just right. And Paul was a Pharisee. He was part of the strictest sect of lawkeepers. Paul sets himself apart from any more relaxed or more moderate sects like the Sadducees or even worse, the Essenes. I mean, the Essenes were practically hippies to Paul, they were very lax. So he sets himself apart from all of those people. And then he says, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. Do you question my enthusiasm for guarding the law? This is not a mock boast of Paul's. This, he actually, well, it is a mock boast, but it's actually true because he convicts himself. He admits he incriminates himself to the church. He was, a, I was a persecutor of Christians, and I tried to destroy them. He says in Galatians 1.13, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And so Paul says, I'm not a moderate by any stretch of the imagination. And then he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul summarizes these arguments as well. He says, according to righteousness of the law, Philippians, I want you to know, compared to these Judaizers who are trying to influence you, I am more righteous than any that they could claim under the law. Now, Paul's not saying that he was sinless, and that's why Paul says, according to the law, faultless. And that means two things. Specifically, it means that this is a fact that could be checked like all the others. You could check and see, like, if Paul ever had to go before the council for any lawbreaking, his record was clean, He's not broken any law or been accused of breaking any law. It was objectively true that he was a law keeper. Secondly, it means that it was recognized that the law never made a person sinless. In fact, the whole point of the law was to recognize and satisfy the demands of a lawkeeper's sin. That's why the law was put in place, because Israel was a sinful nation, and Israelites did sin like we all do. And so God said, I'm putting a law in place with sacrifice and feasts and a whole bunch of rituals to propitiate that sin that you're doing. That's the whole point of the cleansing. And so Paul says, accordingly to the law, he was faultless, not sinless, here he's careful to say, but faultless according to the law. But what we know is that even Paul finally and eventually recognized that his sin had to be dealt with properly, and the law wasn't going to do it. And so Paul, all of this context is setting up for Paul to lean into where real righteousness comes from. He says, this is not what makes anybody righteous. The world is not righteous. The religious people are not righteous. It doesn't matter how you work, how good you are, what your heritage is. That's not where righteousness comes from. Paul wants his Philippian friends to understand that righteousness only comes from one place, and it involves being bankrupt in our flesh. It involves putting no confidence in our flesh. It involves humbling ourselves to realize that we have no righteousness of our own. Only then can we receive true righteousness. Spiritual bankruptcy in our flesh leads to riches in Christ. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish or literally dung in order that I might gain Christ. Now, it's a little bit disguised in the sentence format employed, but what we can see here from Paul is an escalating contrast between the righteousness that he's just boasted about in his flesh and the righteousness that is in Jesus. And if you take each statement and compare them side by side, it comes out a little more clearly. He says, these I have counted as loss for Christ. Then he says, I count everything as loss for the value of knowing Christ. And then he says, I've actually lost everything for him being Christ." And then he says, I count them as rubbish to gain Christ. So four times in kind of an escalating way... Paul increases the emphasis of his words. I counted in the past these things I mentioned as lost. Today I count or reckon or consider everything as lost. Not only do I consider everything as lost, I actually have suffered the loss of everything, not just reckoned everything lost, but I've really endured the loss of everything, every fleshly reason for confidence. And finally, not only have I lost them, not only are they just gone, but they were garbage in the first place. They're dung. These are not good things that I've lost. They were rubbish, and they're done with. And they were all lost to gain Christ, to have and to know Jesus. So what's Paul's point to the Philippians and to us then in this context? He says, saying to the Philippians, just understand your bankruptcy. Understand you have nothing. All the things you thought were something are garbage, and you should lose them all to gain Christ. You need to get to the point where you give up on yourselves and put your hope in its proper place. And that's offensive. This is why the gospel is offensive. It's offensive to the world to be told that they're not righteous. It's offensive to us to be told that we're not good enough and we can't work hard enough to be considered righteous. It's offensive. I get it. As I stand here and talk to the internet, I get it. It's an offensive statement to say these things. And if you've not been there yet in your life, ask a Christian sitting next to you. Every believer here today has arrived at this crisis point that Paul describes at some point in some form. At some point, to receive Christ, every believer has said in some way, I don't have it. I am empty. I am exhausted. My resources have run their course. I have tried. I have failed. I have nothing to offer. I realize it. And I realize now that there is nothing I can do in my own power to make myself right with God. I realize there is no substitute. I realize, Jesus, that you have it, you have everything. And I finally realize that you are the desire of my heart and my soul. And so I just give up. I surrender. I lay down my sword. And I empty my bank account of any pretense that I'm a good person. And I can do this on my own. And I just need a little bit of help, but I'm mainly okay. Friends, listen, every believer has got there at some point in some form where we just said we're not enough and we're not it but Jesus is and if you haven't got there Jesus will get you there right and it's not fun going there do you think Gethsemane was fun for Jesus it's no fun going to Gethsemane but there's no cross and there's no resurrection unless you go through Gethsemane you gotta go through the garden and it's painful to go before God and say, there is no other way. And it's right at that point. It's right at that point of realizing we are bankrupt and losing everything of our own doing that you gain the wealth of Jesus. And that's the good news. That's when the good news of the gospel kicks in. And and just so in our text, that's where Paul is leading his Philippians friends, He's, he's leading them down into forsaking and despair and abandonment of any hope of their own righteousness, telling them that it's all rubbish and garbage and counted as loss, and then all of a sudden the gospel kicks in, and it's right at this point now in the text, Paul distills the very essence of our gospel hope in Jesus. And I just want to give you a few notes before we go into verses 9 to 11 here. Nobody, especially Paul, would claim the entire gospel can be reduced to a paragraph, because we know that the gospel affects all of our life in every way. But the following statement by Paul is apparently to him the very core of the gospel good news. It describes the means of his justification in verse 9. That means being set right with God. It it, it describes the experience of his sanctification in verse 10, that is, how he lives his life. And then finally, it explains the hope of his glorification of future resurrection in verse 10. So you have justification, sanctification, and glorification in one sentence. And, like the rest of this emotional letter... Which we've seen, Paul uses such a mode of language for his friends in Philippi. Paul's summary theology here is expressed in an intentional, intensely personal way. This is is the Apostle Paul's gospel. This is the Apostle Paul's hope. This is good news for Paul himself. It's it's the only passage in all of his writings where Paul calls Jesus "my Lord," "mine." He's my Lord. It's not just something academic to Paul. It's not just a theory. It's not just a a Jewish, you know, theory of God. It's not something academic. It's profoundly personal. And the expression of the gospel in these verses eliminates any attempt to characterize the gospel as either only doctrine or only life experience, as some people try to do. They try to say the Christian life isn't what you believe. It's walking in the footsteps of Jesus and you know, the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. If you do the Sermon on the Mount things, that's what is more important than believing a specific thing about Jesus. And then some people say, no, it's not so important what you do, it's, it's what you believe. And, and, and this summary of the gospel basically eliminates being able to choose either one. The gospel is both what we believe and how it changes us. The teaching of justification by faith in verse 9 is doctrinal, but the application and implication in verse 10 to the course and practice of Paul's life is experiential. Doctrinal truths result in spiritual experience for the believer, and this summary of the gospel does not allow us to ignore that. So let's now read what he says he says and to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in christ the righteousness from god that depends on faith that i might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible i may attain the resurrection from the dead now verse 9 the greek structure gives us another amazing little parallelism You remember when we looked at the Christ hymn, we looked at the structure of the text. And and Paul, I don't know whether he just had a lot of time on his hands in prison, but he writes these amazingly structured sentences and paragraphs in Philippians that that don't appear quite as much in a lot of other letters, but they appear in Philippians. But if you take verse 9 and you break it down, he says, "'It is not my own righteousness that comes from the law,' but through faith in Christ, from God, a righteousness based on faith. And this is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of justification to Paul. Here is what I want to be true of you as it is true in me, Paul is saying. True righteousness is what Paul is holding out to, what he's affirming to his Philippian friends in contrast to the mutilators of the flesh, in contrast to the Judaizers, in contrast to the wicked and perverse generation that they find themselves in, in in contrast to the opposition that they are facing and the suffering that they are in. He is saying, in contrast to the world, in contrast even to people inside the church who are trying to hold out to you a false gospel, I'm offering you a true gospel. Remember, he said, I don't mind telling you this again, and it's good for me that I tell you this again. In other words, Philippians, never leave the gospel. Keep rehearsing this glorious truth. This is our foundation. This is where we stand firm. This is our confidence. This is our hope. This is our rejoicing. Not that we measure up, but that God has lifted us up. Even as he lifted his son up to the cross, he was lifting us up into righteousness, not a righteousness of our own, but a righteousness based on faith. All of that stuff I was mock boasting about, that in me, that my own righteousness, that is rubbish. It is nothing compared to real righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus. The righteousness that doesn't come from me, it's the righteousness from God that you want, not from any law keeping. And that's a righteousness that comes from faith. Or you could use the word trust. It comes by trusting in the person and work of Jesus and trusting in the faithfulness and promise of God, not trusting in yourself. That's faith. And that's conversion. That's what happens when you come to believe in Jesus Christ and and he says, you trusted in me, now I give you a whole new life. And I give you a real righteousness that you can actually live out. Because then Paul goes on to, in verse 10, to explain, you join with Jesus. When this takes place, you join with Jesus in the kind of life he had. You get his righteous life. And Paul claims three extremely important things for himself out of this shared life with Jesus. And I don't want you to miss any of the three. He says that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings. It's three things that Paul lays hold of, of his share in Jesus' life, and they all go hand in hand. Paul says every believer must know Jesus, must know him personally, not just be a good person, not just follow Jesus' teaching, not just measure up to Jesus' standards, or just agree with what Jesus taught. You must know Jesus Christ personally. And it's a lifetime of getting to know Jesus As he shares his life with you, through his scripture, through his spirit, through prayer in your heart, Jesus is making himself known to you, wants you to know him, and it's a lifetime of learning, of knowing that never gets finished. Why do Christians read their Bible? Why do they pray and go to church? Why do they listen to testimonies of other Christians? Why do they examine scripture and do all the things Christians do? Because we want to know Christ. That's why we do it, because we love Christ what Christ has done, and we love who He is, and we want to know Him. So Paul says, you need to know Christ. Every believer needs and must also then secondly lay claim to the power of the resurrection in their life, or they will find the Christian life impossible to live. Paul expands on this in his prayer in Ephesians 1. In 19 and 20, he says, I also pray that you, Ephesian church, but he could say the same to the Philippians... That he could say the same to us. I pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. You want to know what kind of power it is he has? This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Paul says, I want to know Jesus, and in my life, I need the power of his resurrection. You live the Christian life in the exact same power that raised Jesus from the dead and sat him at the right hand of God in heavenly places. You you think you don't have the power to live the Christian life? God has given you the same power he gave Jesus to be resurrected from the dead. That's the power we have. And Paul says, that's the power I'm claiming Right? I'm not just justified. I'm not just counted righteous according to Christ. I have a life that I can know Him and I can know the power of His resurrection. And we need that power because all through this letter... Paul has been confirming the third thing that is a reality of sharing life with Christ that we lay claim to from Jesus. The first two chapters, he's talked about his imprisonment, he's talked about opposition, he's talked about the wicked and perverse generation, he's talked about standing firm, he's talked about it. The whole context of this is the third reason that we need this power is that we must stand firm because we will be persecuted, we will share in the suffering of Jesus, and Paul lays claim that he wants to share in the suffering of Jesus because he knows that sharing In Jesus' life means sharing in his humility. We will face opposition. We will suffer like Jesus for the hope that we have. And Paul lays hold of the sharing and the suffering of Jesus in his life, and he encourages his Christian friends you lay hold to it as well. Don't run away from it, embrace it. Because it's through shared suffering and identity with Christ that we enter into the kingdom. The pattern that Paul is teaching here is clear. Christians share the humility and even the persecution and suffering of Jesus for the sake of the good news of the gospel that the world hates. He says you're going to go down with Jesus so that you can rise with him in glory. Romans 6, 5 says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And what is striking about this summary of Paul's theology, remember the patterns that he's, that he's painting with his words in Philippians that I just touched on? What's striking about this particular summary of Paul's theology of the gospel is how it matches the Christ hymn that he has just, in his prison cell, very likely sung, but also written in this letter. You remember just a few sentences earlier, we covered this last week, the Christ hymn. And here, the gospel life is a parallel to Christ's life. And the pattern is simple. There is a righteousness that is God's and is from God. It's Jesus's righteousness. And that righteousness that is from God, it comes down through humility. Jesus descends to the earth and descends even into death, and so that righteousness of God comes from heaven in the form of Jesus down humbly into death. And in so doing so, as Jesus walked the life approaching his death and walked into death, obediently walking that path, that life, that righteousness results in glorification and exaltation. Jesus is lifted to be seated and exalted, the name above every other name. Jesus is raised from the dead and ascends to the throne of God. And Paul's doctrine of the gospel When we know Jesus personally, we are justified by a righteousness that is from heaven, from God, by faith. And as we descend and we join in the humility and the suffering of Jesus, even unto our death, then in our death we will also be lifted up and glorified like him. Not as Jesus is glorified. We don't sit at the right hand of God. But we are glorified like he is glorified. And so Paul's gospel Theology is a picture of the person of Christ. It's a picture of what has been done for us. And we remember again in conclusion that Paul is writing these words as an encouragement with some warning. He's warning. He's encouraging the Philippians to stand firm and warning them about the Judaizers and the false teachers and false gospels and false hopes in their own flesh. When he says at the end that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead... This is not a statement of uncertainty, as though he's not sure that he has the resurrection from the dead, but it is an unashamed declaration of Paul's gospel hope. This is what the gospel means to us. It is our resurrection from the dead in order to be with Jesus, to fully know Jesus and be fully known. The Bible is unapologetically clear that the gospel is good news to us because it culminates in a remarkable reward, the defeat of death and identity and eternity with God as our Savior. But it's not just an unashamed declaration of our hope, it is also a warning against complacency. The doctrine of Paul's gospel makes it impossible to separate faith from experience or to separate believing from becoming. So Paul says, I've lost everything so that I will join in the suffering of Jesus. And my life will have the marks of true righteousness and of belonging to Jesus because it is by those means that God uses in my life, those means of suffering, those means of persecution, those means of humility. Let me phrase it that way. As I am humbled in my life as Jesus was humbled before the world, before others, as I am humble, as I walk the same walk that Jesus did, Even unto my death, it is by those means that God is attaining my resurrection from the dead and my righteousness. And so we have here in conclusion that Paul is confident but never complacent, not confident at all in his flesh, but confident in the faith and the trust that he's placed in Jesus Christ. And as we'll see in chapter 4, he runs the race, he strives for the prize, not because he isn't sure he will achieve the the prize, like he has to come in first place in the race but because being in the race is the very means by which the prize is achieved. And so Paul is saying every Christian will be in this race. Every Christian will, in some way or another, identify with Jesus in this way because it's by being in the race that you get the prize. It's by being identified with Jesus that you attain righteousness and resurrection. This is the good news of the gospel that the Old Testament promised and the New Testament confirms over and over and over again from many writers in many different ways. And the gospel is this. We have no righteousness of our own. It doesn't matter what family we're from, what ethnicity we are, how hard we work at being good, what rules or boundaries we put in our life, what rituals we participate in, none of those things will qualify us for righteousness. But God has a righteousness prepared for us in Jesus, and he sent that righteousness to us to die for us. And if we put our hope and we put our confidence and we put our trust and our faith in the righteousness of Jesus, if we know him, then he will know us and he will come to dwell with us with his power and his spirit. And we will share in two things, both his humility and suffering, but we will share most gloriously in his resurrection and exaltation. That's the gospel. That's why the Philippians can rejoice. Despite the generation they live in, despite the conflict they're facing, despite the persecution they may experience, despite the opposition that they face, Paul says, rejoice. It is no trouble to me to remind you of this again, and it's good for you to remember. Never stop rehearsing the gospel. The gospel is all of this and a thousand times more. But this is the good news. It's not by our work, but by his work that we are righteous. Let's pray. Father God, this is what we sing about every Sunday. This is what we rejoice in in our hearts This is what gets Christians all fired up. Because we can't believe that you've done what you've done. To send perfect righteousness from heaven. To be abused and belittled and cast aside by us, but to go to the cross anyway and to die for us. And Father God, I just pray again for that everyday miracle of salvation. That we would recognize, even believers would recognize anew. That we aren't all that. That we aren't so great that you just loved us so much because we were such cute little puppies, you just had to die for us. No, we were a wicked and perverse generation. We were rebellious and angry. We shook our fist at you in a thousand ways. And yet you sought us out and you died for us and you pursue us, and you chase us, and you bring us to that point of bankruptcy where we finally say, I get it, we are not it. I can't fix my life, I'm not a good person, I'm not going to get this right. Not because I'm totally depraved, but just because sin affects everything that I try to do. And so, Lord, we just get excited, we get happy, we get rejoicing, we get thrilled, we get <laughs> We get revved up when we think that Christ came and died for us, and we don't have our righteousness, which is as filthy garments, it's rubbish. But we have his righteousness that's perfect and pure and powerful. And by your grace and your mercy, you count us like you count your son. So, Father, bring us to that point again of bankruptcy and laying down our sword and laying down our fights and laying down our arguments And saying, we just need you. And we are so happy, happy, happy all the time. That we can accept that gift of your son's righteousness. And we can glory in him and exalt in him. And worship him, not ourselves or anything that we do. Thank you for that gospel, that good news. In Jesus' name, amen.